0: It's okay. I'd like to read some passages um, from the from the readings this morning. Um, and I passed out um, a scheme, an old scheme, that those of you who did the Commedia will know. It's the scheme of purgatory, uh, included in my prayers. Um, because it's the beginning of Lent. For those of you who have not done the, um, the Commedia, the Divine Comedy, um, we did it and it's, a, it's an amazing work. Um, there's a scheme of Purgatory and I'm going to include it in my prayers and I, I'm giving it to you just as a reminder of the of the levels of purgatory and the nature of the sins and the health because if you remember at every level there were goads and checks, there were images of the sin itself to prick our consciousness and images of the virtue opposite the sin that are the virtues to practice in our efforts to put those sins away so I thought it would be an appropriate time to give those to you. and there are some passages from Isaiah. This is going to be a scattered um, session for us, um, mostly because my own head is scattered on this. But um, And looking ahead, um, for those of you who didn't get the study guide for the chapters that we were going to do this week, it's there. Um, and we're working on the study guide for um, next week. And that study guide will be out Monday. So, this, the latest study guide is from, I think, 110 to, I can't remember. 990 to 110.
1: 990 to
0: 110. Um, and the last study guide will be from 111 to 130, 134, 135, the, the epilogue. So those two study guys will cover it they should help you looking forward because I know I know um, it's a lot of reading and one other thing one other business matter Karen on Monday night asked if we were going to have classes on the week of the 21st because something's going on in the church that that, that oh. might close it down I don't know or there might be a, a speaker here I'm not yeah. sure yeah yeah and I, I'm not aware enough to know to answer that, but just be aware that we might can't have to cancel that week, and I'll have to bring it back to you to find out whether the people on Monday or you guys want to meet that week or not. Um, if we take it off, um, we lose that week, my hope is that we can finish Melville in two more sessions, three at the most. We will be done, and then we will start Go Down Moses and the books have been ordered. And if you've seen the book, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure that you'll look at it with surprise, because it's a much smaller book. <laughs>
1: and,
0: um, <laughs> and you put it next to Moby Dick, and probably heave a great sigh of relief. Um, um, just be on. Uh, just be warned. Um, it's a much smaller book, but well, I can't say that. I'm I, actually I'm teasing with you. The Bear, which is one of Faulkner's greatest stories, is the centerpiece of um, of that work, and some of the language gets a little bit difficult, but it's not going to present the problems that Melville presents. Um, it's going to be interesting to see what you guys think about that because as you are I think you already know by now, Go Down Moses is Faulkner's treatment of the Isaac, the chosen one. Um, so. Moby Dick and Go Down Moses. Fortunate for us. I mean, it's sort of amazing that this, this came out of America. You know, these two works on the on the Outcast one and the and the Chosen one too. So, so we'll start going down Moses after we take a break, I think. Oh, those are the books. Holy cow! Here, Doc.
2: Let's
0: here put them here. Twelve dollars? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Here I'll pass it. you just pass them around, you can just take them. done. you take this? Pass it around. You just see. If anybody wants to paint today, you can. Okay. So. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Here, look at this.
1: Oh my, oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> and breathe. Oh
1: my. And, and the
0: print, look here. And the print is larger too, oh, so. That's good. <laughs> good. Oh my. I yeah. think
1: you went to get. it all. You
2: want it
0: Just, you can look at it or buy it. I'm up go. I
1: don't need my glasses. Almost. Almost. And you I pay humor, St. Francis. You
0: always make it out to St. Francis. Then, good luck wise. on that. I want to know once you start. Fred, once you start. I knew you were going okay. to. Okay. Go. <laughs> <laughs> oh
1: yeah, I'm ready. I just teed
0: that one up. Now that you see that, I should be. I should be still. This would be a good penance for me. Um, <laughs> It, there are six, it's been a one, there are six or seven stories that constitute the novel, the plot. Can I have your attention? here? Cause the, since we've got it, I wasn't expecting this morning. It's a, it's a series, it's a collection of stories that Faulkner wrote at different times and then reached a point where he realized that he'd been dealing with the same thing all along. There's one theme at the center of this, and I'm not going to tell you what it is. So when you read the separate stories, it's a little bit like reading um, Ishmael's separate chapters, except they're very much more disconnected and the continuity, the coherence between them isn't obvious. So even though they might be easy to read, it's going to force you to think about what's the connection here, what's linking these stories together, because they are. This is about Ike, the chosen one. Um, So it's interesting because they're short stories and I think you'll find them easier to read and they're self-contained and the relationship between one and some of the others isn't always obvious so part of the work that we will have is reading is putting these things together and seeing what it is that ties them together so it's a wonderful book wonderful book I think that's it so and we have for those of you who didn't get um, the packet on the heresies. Was everybody here do I need to go over that? I put together this packet on the heresies and the sacraments um, to make sense of what I want to talk about this morning. Uh, I want to get to that because I really am stepping outside of the work that we've been doing together. Uh, I feel like I've got to do this, so. But if any of you want the packets, they're here. Um, remember that there's a list on the first page of all the um, all the things that are included in the packet. It's, it's a, there is a, a short history on heresies, it's just a few paragraphs. There's a much longer um, work on the heresies, it goes into the heresies in a little bit more depth. There's a study guide on St. Thomas which I did for an online school program ages ago. I think it's really fine. It's, it's like the study guides that those of you who have done the Iliad and the Odyssey, you've read those study guides so you know. It's, I think it's a really good study guide. It, it, it's an attempt to synthesize the greater part of Thomas. There's, obviously there's lots left out, but um, there's that. And then some small, short study guides on Luther and Calvin since they're major figures um, um, who are still alive for lots of people today. Okay, let's um, start. Um, I, I know some of you would like to include uh, people that you're concerned about in our prayers, so... I have a pen? There. Does anybody have... Linda, what's Declan? Declan. Declan. Baby Declan. You all saw Declan's picture. Um, Does anybody else have anybody else besides Declan? Doc, um, This is from Isaiah. I wanted to say a prayer for all of us um, at the beginning of Lent and just happened to be the reading this morning. So I'd like to um, just recall some passages. Those of you who are in mass have already heard them, but this is from Isaiah. And, um, Isaiah is speaking for God. The Lord says, cry out full-throated, unsparingly, lift up your voice. Um, tell my people their wickedness. This is from God to his prophet. Tell my people their wickedness. The prophets are asked to point out our sins however painful that is. Um, They seek me day after day and desire to know my ways like a nation that has done what is just and not abandoned the law of their God. They ask me to declare what is due them, pleased to gain access to God. Why do we fast and you do not see it afflict ourselves and you take no note of it. Okay. Is there anything we do that God doesn't know? Jacques right. Maritain has this wonderful line, um, each one of us was created in the image of God. There's something so different about each one of us, I know you all know this, that in our marriages or in our intimate relationships we, we, I think we become very aware how different we are from each other, men from women, one person from another, To marry is a is a extraordinary risk because it means um, entering into the intimacies with another person, and all the sins. I mean, I I sort of laugh at the pre-cana sometimes. If if I were involved in pre-cana, the first thing I'd say to the prospective couples is learn learn to bear each other's sins. I mean, that's going to be a big part. You're going to carry them when you're when you're first become when you first become interested <laughs> in each other you live in this romantic world and think everything's gonna be roses and then you get married and you wake up in the morning and look at your spouse and ask yourself why you married this person. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember Kayla <laughs> <gonna be> <laughs> <laughs> Kayla <laughs> Kayla. Where's Tom? Is he coming? He's coming okay. <laughs> Kayla is our middle daughter-in-law, and I remember she and she has a blog online. And and one of the, I think it was one of the early blogs she wrote, was her <laughs> disillusionment waking up with her husband one morning and looking at at these at these two hairy things, and <laughs> you can imagine where this is going. The the paper's unfolding, and you're thinking this is not one of those things you can mention about a human being, these two hairy things, it came down to his feet and how smelly they were and hair on them. And you know, the, the, it was, She had this rude awakening that there was this something who, who was, couldn't be more different from a woman with all of her delicacies. And you know, mm. um, Anyway, um, um, we're asked to look at our sins. Maritan has this line where he says that the depth of subjectivity is so great in each one of us that if we weren't known by God we we wouldn't be known because he's the one who knows us most intimately and I think we know that in our marriages as much as we could I mean the risk that we take to get in to become one to expose ourselves to open ourselves to each other is extraordinary Um, take that kind of knowledge and put it in God's hands and you can imagine What is there anything about? He he doesn't know. I mean, it's sort of funny the things that we do to hide from God. When you think about Jonah doing everything he can to run, here's the Jonah story: doing everything he can to run away from God. How can we run away? We can keep running. Um, The only, I mean, the full escape from God is hell. Uh, We can't, cannot not be known by Him. So he says, point out. Isaiah is castigating the people for their going through the motions of doing penance and he lists the sorts of things that they do. This rather, and then he says, this rather is the fasting that I wish, releasing those bound unjustly, releasing those bound unjustly, untying the thongs of the yoke, setting free the oppressed, breaking every (laughs) yoke, feeding the bread, the hungry, clothe the naked, Don't turn your back on your own. I'd like to give special attention to those early, those first couple of things. Um, Releasing those bound unjustly, untying the thongs of the yoke, setting free the oppressed. Releasing those bound unjustly. Um, In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you, freely given, and the gift of yourself freely given. You're asking us to make of our own lives free gifts, to have the courage to risk ourselves, to enter um, relationships, activities um, that will ask that of us um, for all that it does to put it at risk, to make us vulnerable. Um, I'd like to ask a special um, blessing on all of us as we begin Lent to take seriously your call to um, to free each other from the bonds under which we live and I'd like to ask that particularly for our closest relationships for any of the ways in which we hold each other in bondage expectations um, memories wounds um, help us to free them um, to come out of that past and its grievances um, to stand with you in perfect love Um, bear whatever wounds it asks, Um, help us all to be strengthened in our efforts to put away our sins, Um, all the excesses to to curb our appetites for sex, for food, drink, things, the sloth um, that uh, we fall into sometimes, the wrath, the envy, um, the pride, the arrogance, the stubbornness, all those things. Those are the sins in purgatory. Um, let this Lent be an active climb up purgatory for all of us, um, to enter into this period, to mind our own business, um, to put away our sins and um, bring those efforts to you on Easter and when Lent is over. Um, ask a special blessing on um, Dick, Dick? Declan, surround him with your protection. Um, Give the um, staff the help that they need, sure hands and clear minds um, to find a way to protect him. Be with his parents, um, let their hearts be at ease. In some ways help them to let him go, um, so that even if he survives, um, they will love him as you asked us to love each other, trusting in you always. Um, I ask a blessing on all of us here in our work together. Um, Help us to um, take all that we learn out into the world, particularly where it's not wanted, make you present, (coughs) join you in your work. We ask all of these um, in your name, Lord, Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Okay, this is not going to be easy. Um, I hadn't intended on doing this, um, and I'm going to step out of, (laughs) I don't like the word world, but out of the work that I do as a teacher of literature um, to take on a catechetical problem more directly. I hadn't (laughs) intended on doing it, you know, because I talked about it last week, so this isn't going to come as any surprise to you. Um, the, one of the questions that that I asked a couple of weeks ago now was uh, this question: We we left the land and the culture. We were out at sea, and the 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 ship crew caved in to Ahab. They nobody had the backbone to resist him. And when I put all that together, I asked you this question: um, Why? Why couldn't anybody resist him? Um, it, it's a literature work, so we can dismiss it. but it I think, as you know, literature just isn't literature to me, so it it opens up a very, very serious question for me. Um one of the questions I asked is if you if you look at the at the opening of the of Moby Dick and you look at all the characters, you you become aware that, that all of the characters are, are in some ways, being hypocritical. They're all, they're all failing their faith in major ways, every one of them. Peter Coffin um, is running his bar. The Lazarus figure is in the gutter, freezing. Those, I mean, it's all comic, so we can read past it, but we know, we know the Lazarus story in Luke that he um, dies, ignores him, when he gets to heaven, he's in, Lazarus is with the, um, the saved, and dies, is in hell and he, um, he asks if, I think he's talking to Abraham,
1: mm-hmm.
0: he asks Abraham if um, Lazarus can dip his finger in water just to partly quench his thirst, and Abraham says No that there's this chasm dividing, so it's Um, it's not going to happen at which point um, Lazarus asked Abraham then if he would send his brothers or or a a messenger um, to warn his brothers somebody from the dead and Abraham's answer is if they won't listen they won't listen to him if they, won't listen to a- they have Abraham and Moses. If they won't listen to him, they won't listen to somebody from the dead. That's the um, Lazarus story. And clearly Melville intends for us to understand that. Peter Coffin's in the bar doing his work like all people who run businesses and there's a man outside who's dying. Um, if we look at um, all the Presbyterians, I mean, it's a, the, the New England culture is largely Congregationalist and Presbyterian. Those are the dominant religions. Congregationalists are different from Presbyterians in thinking of themselves as having autonomy, so each group is a group unto itself. It means it can believe anything, do anything. Its authority rests in itself. There's no unity. When we walked inside the chapel, remember um, um, Ishmael's description of them, everybody was sitting alone to themselves. And in the Squires and... Um, Knights and Squires. Thanks, Don Knights and Squires episode, he describes all the men as Isolantos. He says, not one of two men is an American. Everybody's from all over the world. How are things different today? It's always been that way. He calls them Isolantos. So when you go into the chapel, everybody's alone. And Father Mapple has that fire and brimstone sermon which, it seems to me, speaks the truth in a frightening way, but it seems to me we you could say that there's something really vindictive, that that there's a lack of charity. This is my judgment, you may not agree. It seems to me he should have spoken those words because they need to be said. But the spirit in which he did it, when he calls down fire and rain and killing and murder to enforce the gospel, it seems to me that it's there's a vindictive quality that, that the truth isn't offered in love or mercy so the the congregation or the, the, the community tends to make fun of Kwee Kwee and um, Ishmael when they're walking the Presbyterian community there's that moment when Ishmael is watching Kwee worship his um, Yojo and and then um, participating in in, and saying of himself that he's turned heathen. Um, It's like he's going against his Presbyterian beliefs. Um, When we get to Mrs. Hussey's house, remember that she's more concerned about the cleanliness of her house and saving money than she is about Quiquit's death, possible death. Her mind is on material things, and we've seen that as a general rule throughout that critique that people are far more concerned with money and comfort. It's, a, it's the beginnings of what we know today as our materialistic way of looking at the world. When they get on board ship, the captains cheat them, or Ishmael. So we, there's, not, there's not a character that we look at that isn't living hypocritically in some way. And it led me to this question, what's going on? Now, remember, when we looked at the plot, So if we, if we look at the opening, the opening looks at the land and culture. And it's a Christian culture, and it shows a Christianity that's failing. It's too concerned with pleasure, comfort, security, money. When we get out to sea, remember, we're gonna, we're gonna begin to explore the metaphysical or spiritual roots of everything we see here, because both Ahab and Ishmael, and especially Ahab or Ishmael, always want to understand the metaphysical groundings of things, the origins. Um, we see that particularly in Ishmael, because he's always concerned to see the analogies between things. So he takes, he takes very ordinary things and, and relates them to other things, so that we begin to see that all these things in nature are related. Shifani, tell, can you just? tell everybody here what you told me earlier, what surprised you when you stepped back and looked at it, because I thought it was a really good description of what's going on.
1: But there's so much fact in the book, you know, it almost makes you believe that this actually happened.
0: Give an example.
1: Oh, how he brings the different Philippine countries as their, as Pequets traveling east and the, is it Sundana Strait and all the references to
0: mm-hmm. um, Norway or the uh, Norwegian
1: whalemen and, mm-hmm. yeah. and the actual whales, you yep. know, the description of the whales and yep. their differences. Yeah. So.
0: There's not an aspect of the ship, practically, that it doesn't look at, look at the, the, the different working operations of the ship. The ship itself, the mast, the deck, the hole below where they burn, the furnaces. There's not an aspect of the whale that he doesn't look at. The spout, the eyes, the, the brain, the tail, the skeleton. There's, not, there's nothing he does that doesn't begin with what's in front of him with his senses. So he's, he's beginning with an empirical world, with facts. But as you know, as you read, you cannot read a chapter where he doesn't look at those facts and then suddenly draw some conclusion that has to do with something else. More likely with us as humans. And there's not anything he practically, nothing he looks at that he doesn't look at facetiously. Every chapter is funny. He makes these silly, meaning he he sort of is poking fun at the people who pretend to have this knowledge about all these things when what he's showing us is that there's lots they don't understand. So when we got to sea, we're, we're beginning to look at the metaphysical aspects of things. And it's shortly after they leave port that Ahab appears on deck on the quarterdeck scene and draws them all into his quest. And we talked about that, how American it is that um, what allows him to, to gain power over everybody, in the way that he does, is that he's appealing to everybody's sense of being, of having been injured, wounded. Because, because everybody everybody has experienced a thump, everybody's experienced being treated unjustly, um, everybody could identify with Ahab. And Ishmael more than anybody says, I raise my voice more than anybody. So everybody gets called into this quest of um, wanting to get back. And in this particular instance, the wanting to get back has to do with something in nature. It's not another person, it's not Hector, it's not Turnus, you know, in the Iliad, the Odyssey. It's not another person. There's, there seems to be something wrong with nature itself. Ahab's response to this problem is, he believes that there's something behind nature that's, that's inherently evil, that has a malicious design to it. So when, when Moby Dick turns on somebody who attacks him, it, repeatedly, you've read the descriptions, people think of him as having an, an act of will to harm. So, Moby Dick becomes an image of this larger question of a metaphysical reality. And Ahab says, whether it's the mask, whether it's an agent or principle, whether it's outside of the universe or whether it's an agent working in the universe, he will strike through that mask and take that thing out. Now, so that's that's one aspect of the metaphysical quest. On the other, we've got Ishmael, who is open to everything and I remember raising the question how many of us go through our life even people of prayer how many of us go through life um, looking at things in wonder I mean how often do we do it if you know one of the things that we're going to see when we come back is what Ishmael is teaching us to do is to stand in wonder again with our creation because the modern world has done nothing but take that away the sciences have done that there's very little to wonder. Science is living in a world of abstractions, of quantity. Um, It it prescinds, it moves away from the concrete. Remember, I said poets always take us back to the concrete. Flowers, bees, whales, persons. (laughs) You know, all the facts. A ship. Um, So, um, we're out at sea exploring the metaphysical groundings and beginning to explore what's at issue, what, what's, why this world has failed. So, um, I raised that question. What's wrong? And, and, and at some point, I, I put the question this way. Can a, a Christian community maintain its faith without a sacramental life? Because if we look at the New England cultures, there's nothing sacramental. There's nothing in the chapel. There's no sign of anything sacramental in that world. So um, that was the question that I left everybody with and, and it led to this. Um, and I want to come back to this, but Don, did you have a question or a comment or something?
1: I have a question about how the movie makes relate to America today. And I was watching the movie Concussion yesterday on Netflix and uh, basically uh, this pathologist from Nigeria discovers that a lot of these football players that are dying—they have all kinds of problems, early onset of uh, Alzheimer's and whatnot. And a lot of them kill themselves. And he analyzed the brain of one of them and found out that uh, you know football concussions were causing a lot of these football players to uh, yeah. have problems. Yeah. Uh, he coined the term CTE as a. New disease, yeah, and uh, how the NFL tried to uh, suppress him, Yep. <laughs> yep. Yeah, uh, yeah. They even got the government to uh, arrest his uh, supervisor under all kinds of false pretenses. And so,
0: they did a movie, they've got a movie on. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Oh, I think you're talking about a book. No. Oh, sorry, it's a movie. <coughs> oh, yeah, yeah, sorry, Smith. yeah, and right,
1: and uh, they really tried to uh, uh discredit this doctor, uh, and he's. He's saying he's saying the truth, the scientific truth of what he's yeah. discovered, and, and yeah. they're all rejecting it. And they have their own uh, uh, doctors that are uh, in their pockets, so to speak. And it brings out the fact that, you know, the NFL is a huge business, you know, is God on Sunday, and then there's the NFL.. Right. And uh, right. you get this uh, whole thing that this is, this is what's going on in America today. That corporations, you know, are out for their own. Uh, uh, agreed. Yeah. Mm. Uh, yep. And they also reference the cigarette companies, you know, doing all their research and saying that cigarette smoking is not harmful.
0: Yeah. Uh, you can include all the drug companies too. Presenting
1: yeah. that as scientific fact. <clears throat>
0: um. Okay, um, what I'd like to do now is, is um, step outside of what we've been doing and take on a catechetical task. And I'm a little bit apprehensive about doing it because I didn't anticipate this when I began, um, but I cannot not do it. So what I'd like to do is look at this, at this question of the sacraments, at what's at issue here. And one of the reasons I'm doing this is this. In the Monday night group, one of the women um, whom, I, whom I, what? Well, I what? I remember her. <laughs> uh, well, whom I dearly love, she's a convert from a Protestant um, faith, um, very um, conscientious in all that she did. Anyway, when I, I, I apparently I probably made some reference to the um, Eucharist when I was talking about the importance of a sacramental life and, and whether any Christian culture can avoid slipping into a moral code because I think what Melville is showing us is that, is that this. remember our founding was religious the, the Presbyterians and the Congregationalists who came here, the Puritans founded this country for religious reasons they were absolutely dedicated in their lives they, they left everything to come here fiercely religious. All the, all the early writings of, um, are in, uh, expressive of intense convictions. So that the, the New England Christian world that Melville's showing us is really in decline, It's failing. And it led me to this question: can, can a Christian community hold on to its faith without the sacraments? And I must have said, I must have mentioned Eucharist. I don't, I don't remember what brought it up, but I'm sure I said something about the Eucharist. And and um, and the parishioner came back the following week and and gave a, um, statistics on how widespread communion was in the Protestant world. Because I, I think I'd said something about the Protestant world doesn't believe in communion. And she came back, and the statistics were extraordinary. I mean that on, on the basis of the statistics you would have thought almost the whole Protestant world took communion. And I'm sure I was clear at some point that there's a fundamental difference between the Protestant view of communion and the Catholic, but I, thinking back on it, I'm, I'm not sure that it would have been clear for somebody who, does, who simply doesn't understand it. So, So. I'm, I'm moving off to answer that question because ultimately I want to get back to it. Because the question that I'm going to end with today is um, um, does Melville answer this problem that I'm raising? Can a Catholic community maintain its faith without actively being involved in the sacraments? That's a pretty dangerous risky question it seems to me. Does Melville help us on that? Because ultimately my my task here is in literature but it's a catechetical program. I've got to deal with this and I've got to deal with it in spades right now because it's really serious. Um, This is a church community here. um, So I want to look at this closely. So here's what I wanted to do. I want to look for, at, for a few minutes at this question of the sacraments and why they're important and what the difference is, is between a Protestant understanding of a sacrament like the Eucharist um, and um, a Catholic understanding of it. I'm going to go back to beginnings. I want to go back to beginnings to do this. According to all of in Christianity. All of us believe in a trinity. Well, in in a true um, Christian spirit. Because the Jehovah Witnesses, I think, think of themselves as being within the Christian world. They don't believe in a trinity, so they don't believe that Christ is divine. And I don't think the Mormons do either. I don't think they believe in a trinity. I may be wrong in that. I, I don't think they do Here's our belief, and this is really crucial. Um, Islam, Judaism doesn't believe in the Trinity. So what's the issue here? What's the big... We all believe in the same God. What's the big issue? I can't get any bigger than this. Um, Here's why there's a trinity, not only because it's mentioned, when Christ sends the disciples out at the very end of his mission, he says, go out and baptize in the name of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So we know scripturally, and there are other pieces of evidence in scripture that make clear that there's a trinity of persons. Now, how can there be three persons and not, and not how can we believe in three persons and not slip back into a kind of um, polytheism? Like the pagans had multiple gods. For this reason, <clears throat> if God, Old Testament, if God is being itself, He says, "I am that am." Yeah. If He's being itself, and He's of what substance? He's He's uncreated because if He were created, He would depend on something else, right? He has to be uncreated. He's being itself. If He is, it means um, if He if He uh, if he, conce- if he has a conception of himself, if he understands himself, the, the act of conceiving of himself um, would produce the idea of himself, just as it would be for us. Right? Each one of us can have an idea of ourselves. We can conceive of ourselves. I hope that's clear. Our minds will conceive of a self. If he conceives of himself, the conception of himself is his son. It's begotten, not made, not created, it's not a creation, and it can't be other than a person because of God's own substance. He's not a force, he's not power, he's not electricity, he is personhood itself. So if he conceives of himself, the conception of himself, the image of himself, is his son. There cannot be another son because he can't conceive of himself twice, and th- this is really important because it's going to go to the filioque, that the, the, was at the root of the schism between the Greek and Western world. Is that clear? Can only be one son. He conceive of, conceives of himself because the son is the concept of himself. He's begotten, not made. He's one in substance with the Father. The love between the two of them is the Holy Spirit. It can't be other than a person. Because of the nature of Godhead. Yeah? Okay. So, one nature, three persons. It's a monotheistic belief, but it's far more complicated than most of the world recognizes because by the very nature of God, if he conceives of himself, it's got to be a person. That's why they are distinct and indwelling. That's why the nature of love is to love another and be loved, to be in unity. If we're made in the image of God, that should play out in our lives. We have to struggle with our sins and try to overcome them and return to that condition, if I can. Yeah? Okay. Now let me try to flesh this out because this is really important. All of you have tried writing papers. All of you have written papers, sorry. All of you, I know you've written papers, yeah? Yeah. When you first sit down to write a paper, let's say a teacher gives you a topic, you know that the idea that you have is different from the idea of somebody else, and you shouldn't plagiarize, because teachers are asking you to take responsibility for your own work, your own ideas. They may be similar, right, but they're your own. So the idea each one of us has is unique. Um, Can you ever fully realize what that idea, I'm going to call it an intuition, a light going on, that idea concept, you know, that light. Can you ever fully realize what it is until you fleshed it out, begun writing? I'm going to say no, because we're not angels. We're incarnated creatures. It won't be until we've written it out. And you know what a task that is, because as we start writing, we say, no, that's not quite it, or I've made a mistake, or I've gotten off track, or this is incoherent, I've got to put this here and this, you know. It'll only be when it's completed that you'll finally say, Ah, you know, this is my paper. This is what I intended to say. It could be a two page paper, it could be a 20 page paper, right? Are you all with me? Mm-hmm. That idea is the Father. It's original to you. Yeah? That selfhood by which we participate in the I am of the Father. It's original, it's yours incarnating it is, is Christ at work with you, fleshing it out yeah? The power with which you do that is the spirit whether you brought the idea and fleshed it out well enough to, to give it the power you think it deserves. are you following? So in that act of writing we have, an illustration, an example of the workings of the Trinity in our life. If we're made in God's image, there's nothing we do in the world that doesn't reflect a Trinitarian God. If we start a business, presumably the idea, we start a business, we flush it out. We hope that the way we do it will be in Christ, the power with which we do it. And I don't mean power in the world's terms, I mean the belief, the love, the convictions, yeah. So there's nothing that we do in our lives that doesn't express the Trinity. Now, there can be scalene trinities, imbalanced trinities. Some people have more of the Father in them. I'm sure you can pick them out. Some people have more of the Christ. Some people have more of the Spirit. You can call it a charismatic kind of character. If you think about it, all of us are called to be indwelling Trinitarians, that the Father, Christ, and the Spirit are all present in everything we do. But there's nothing we do in the world that doesn't reflect a Trinitarian character, if you looked at it. Giving ourselves something to it, the inspiration behind it, how it gets fleshed out, could be a business. It could be playing basketball. Yeah? It could be anything. Um, and the inspiration of the power which is expressed through that work. Okay? Now, let me stop for a second on that. Was that clear? It's a way of saying the Trinity's in us all the time, and we should be aware. Are, are, are we bringing Christ to what we do to help realize the Father? And are we doing it in a way um, that shows the Spirit at work? Because remember, the Spirit was commissioned by Christ. It was to bring Christ to the world. So. So, in all of our activities, are we, are, we, are we making the Father visible? Are we fleshing him out? Are, are we doing it with the inspiration that should make it real? So, so the Trinity um, by its very nature, I mean, Godhead, by its very nature, is Trinitarian. has to be. That's our truth. That's what separates us from Islam, that's what separates us from Judaism or any of the other world religions. Now what happened is the sun. No, OK, so what happened is this: Man fell, we disobeyed God. You all of you know this from Dante. I mean, this is a wonderful thing about Dante. Dante was like a catechism course in itself. Man fell, he disobeyed God. We know from Dante, if we didn't know it from our catechism, I didn't know it. I wasn't raised Catholic, Um, and I learned it when I read Dante, not through a catechism book. We know that when man disobeyed God, there was no way for him to give satisfaction for that sin because his sin was against God who is infinite. As a finite man, there's no way he could have atoned for it. Remember, this is straight out of Dante. Um, So man was faced with this problem, or God was faced with this problem. God could have left us damned, or he could have saved us, just excused it. What he did was, in accord with Aristotle's understanding of everything, what he did was was take a, a mean path between those two extremes. Yeah, not to leave us damned, and um, not to just excuse it and wipe it away. What good would that have done us? As I'm assuming we do it again, but... What he did and said, as Dante describes it, was the most perfect act that ever was or ever will be, because God entered nature, took on a human form, in order to take on that sin and atone for us, because we couldn't do it ourselves, okay? Now, that was the most perfect act of justice the world has ever known, you remember from the Paradiso, I love that line. Remember, it's in Canto Seven. We we spent a good amount of time on it. Remember, in Canto Six and Seven, Dante's in the in the heavens, and he's just he's entered the um, the heaven of justice, and he's dealing with questions of justice. And Justinian says something about um, Jerusalem being destroyed in 70 A.D. and um, and being destroyed justly. and um, And Dante wonders how it could have been just. and it raises this question of Christ and the, the Jews denying Christ. Um, remember Beatrice is explaining to him these these more complicated matters. and in, in um, Canto seven, um, this is the response of, I think it's Beatrice, or it may have been Just, um, Justinian and the eagle. Now, direct your sight to what's said. This human nature united with its maker when created was pure and good, but through its own act it was banished from, parad- from paradise since it turned from the way of truth and from life. Now remember, the reason the angels can't be saved is because they chose, on an act of their will, they chose to refuse God, to deny him. Adam and Eve were tricked. They were deceived. Eve was deceived, which was a great enough sin. Adam made it worse because he knowingly disobeyed God. He chose to go along with Eve because he didn't want to lose the companionship they had to then obey God. So that's our original sin. Our original sin is God. Every other sin that we commit has its origins there. Murder, regicide, genocide. Kill off nations, have wars that destroy thousands, millions of people. None of them will ever compare to killing God or or disobeying and then killing him when Christ came. So so the original, and another way of putting that, it seems to me the, the full implications of that original sin become clear in the crucifixion. If it isn't clear what that disobedience meant, it becomes clear then. We put him on a cross. We killed him. That's how grave our sins are. So every other sin, no matter how heinous they seem to us, pale by comparison to that. We kill God. So our original sin was disobedience against God. Um, The penalty therefore which the cross offered, if measured by the nature assumed, never struck anyone so justly. Christ took on our nature. So if you look at the nature assumed, no act was ever more just. The whole question here is justice. Christ was crucified because he took on our nature. And none ever did such great wrong if we consider the person who suffered and by whom that nature was assumed. Thus from one act, different results ensue. um, For the same death which shook the earth and opened heaven pleased God and the Jews, obviously for different reasons. It's that clear. If you look at the nature assumed, nothing was more just. He came down to atone for a sin which we could not atone for ourselves. If you look at the nature assumed, nothing was ever more just. He had to, he had to fulfill the law. If you look at the person involved, no one was ever treated more unjustly. Okay? So for that to happen, Christ had to assume our nature. He had to be a human being. Because the whole question of human justice, human and divine justice, was at issue. That's what, that's the great miracle, the extraordinary marvel behind our faith. Hmm? That God came down, took on our nature to answer that justice, this issue of divine justice between us and God. <coughs> now, to just put this in a context. This is getting so far away from Wales, but. I hope you'll bear with me. <laughs> no, wait, wait. Um, I'm going to have to read this. because We know from Old and New Testaments that the indwelling power of the Trinity can take a variety of forms. Multiply, infinite. We know that from the Bible. The continuous parting of the Red Sea that allowed the Israelites to pass. The man in the desert feeding the Israelites. The widow um, Zarephah offering Elijah the last measure of meal, only to see it replenish itself." She was reluctant to, well, she knew that when she gave it, she'd be out. And she knew she'd die. When she gave Elijah the meal, it replenished itself. It did not run out. The stranger from Baal giving Elisha the twenty barley loaves to feed hundreds and still having leftovers according to the Lord. This is a quote from the Bible. They shall eat and there shall be some left over. That's in the Old Testament. And we know it in the New Testament from the feeding of the, the bread and the fish. It multiplied. So long before the Eucharist ever comes up, we have this sense of God, in the desert, we have this sense of God feeding his people out of his own substance, something. And the, the, the miraculous power, it has to multiply. So we already have a foreshadowing of the Eucharist. Yeah? This multiplying. It shouldn't... If if you if you can believe God created the universe, the planets and stars, and He He um, pushed apart the Red Sea, how can you not believe in these other things? Because they're they follow so much on what He shows Himself to be doing all the time, anyway. Um, what about the paradoxes? So we. There are miracles that predate Christ, that um, foreshadow Him, all the miracles that He performs, the walking on water, the healing, um, the multiplication of the the loaves and the fish, and finally the resurrection. Um, Here are some of the paradoxes that Christ left us with because no other act could ever approach what he did. At the center of Christianity are what we would call mysteries or paradoxes. People who think in black and white terms, in some ways are not coming to the center of our faith because the very nature of our faith is paradoxical. A God took on human nature? I mean, if there were mysteries before and wonders before, how did they do anything but explode and multiply then? The infinitely strong, all-powerful God became weak in in the form of a helpless baby and growing up. The God of limitless wealth, infinitely rich, is there anything lacking in being in Godhood? No. Whatever riches we have will pale by comparison to him. So he is rich beyond comparison, beyond words. He took on poverty, was wrapped in swaddling crows in a manger and he lived in poverty most of his life. He wasn't made comfortable by the the 19th century materialism that we've been looking at. The distant and hidden and inscrutable God became close and familiar. He entered into relationships with a mother, the disciples. The invisible God became visible. The God who created his universe became a part of it. The totally other became one of us. The eternal and timeless entered time. The Lord and master of history, at work providentially, every work we've been looking at, Shakespeare, Homer, it doesn't matter, we've seen gods intervening in every single work, at work, Winterstale, we went over that. The God outside, in control of, working with, he he never takes free will away. He always works with what we do. He's outside helping. Christ enters into that history, becomes a part of it. The untouchable, unapproachable becomes vulnerable. The all-knowing takes on our human nature. At the very end, Christ says to the Father, um, I can't remember the words, if you can do this, take this cup away from me, and then he says, thy will be done. It means in some sense, as a human however much he took on divine powers there must be something he can't see or why would he say that to his father. He became an ignorant infant and began to learn and we know how important that was because when remember the incident when he's, he's left behind and then Mary and Joseph come back looking for him and Mary says to him why did you do this for me? It's as close to anger as she gets at Christ. It's like a mild scolding um, and then the last description of that phrase is ago, and, and he went off with his parents to be obedient to them, God was obedient to his mother and father, that God, the, the we, we should, I, I, I have no sympathy for people who have trouble with obedience, mm-hmm. <laughs> that God obeyed his mother, God, the God who is frequently called silent, we don't hear him except in the gospels, he's quiet, came into our world and spoke, I give you a new commandment. Servants don't know their master. You're no longer a master, you know, I'm no longer your master, call me your friend. This is my new commandment. So a silent God for the Jews in Israel, for the Jews, the silent God, the distant God, the one out there enters time, speaks, loves, moves about with them. Um, um, The Godhead which is immortal, unchanging, enters time, and takes on our mortality. If he did that, his work wouldn't have been complete. So um, so when God, when God entered our human nature, he brought everything from Godhead into our nature and left us with all these paradoxes. And it's a wonderful marvel. Anybody, I mean, I would just think people would, I mean, I, I would have no trouble seeing everybody getting up in over the morning crying, tearing up at the wonders in front of them all day long. And we live underneath these dark, dark beliefs today that just take all this away. What's Ishmael doing? Trying to help us wonder and get us back. Now, um, here are these heresies. I've just taken out a few of them, because the the list is long. The church has always, always been under attack. And and more often than not, from the inside. The church is always spiritually struggling in conflict with problems. That's the nature of the church. God did this. Who can believe it? God left a divine nature and entered our world for us. Are you kidding? It's easier not to believe that than to believe it, it seems to me, according to reason. So the church has always been embattled. That's its very nature. It's under attack, and very often from inside. Arian, a bishop, believed that God was a human, that he was created. And, And interesting, most of the early heresies came from the East, which tended to protect the absolute power of Godhead. Arian believed that God, that Christ, was human. He, he was the firstborn. That's a literal phrase from the Bible, the firstborn. So people who take that literally think of him as being a born, undergoing the process of generation along with everybody else. But since he was the firstborn, he had special divine powers. And how that can be, I don't know. Because we believe Christ was the second person, that he wasn't born with special powers, but the Arians do. Sibelianism, Sibelius, I think 2nd century, um, believed that Christ was the Father in another mode. It's called modalism. Now that's really important. So according to Sibelius, the second person didn't come into nature and actually assume a body. It was the Father... using a mode of entering a human existence and then returning. We believe that Christ was fully God, fully man, that he died and went back to heaven, taking with him his human body. Remember when we did the Divine Comedy, the very last thing Dante asked for was, he wanted to look at the Trinity, and he looked at Christ, and he says, how do you square that? Godhead and and personhood? The Divine, I mean, this is stunning to me. I can't, sorry, get worked up. There's nothing. There's very little about the modern world that makes humans good at all. We're product. I ask this question again and again. If you look at the beginnings of things, what are they? If we look at the beginnings of things according to the ancient world, where's man? Is he good? Is he high or low? He's high. He's, he's a descendant from the gods. If you look at man in the modern world, what are his beginnings? High or low? They couldn't be lower. Out of a black hole. Out of monkeys. If you look at this, you think, holy cow that Christ took on our human nature, for him to assume human nature meant he made nature sacred. And he took it back with him so that anybody following him would assume that something of the divine nature when they return. Remember when we read Dante in the Paradiso, the indwelling. There's no time or space as we know it here. People interdwelled with each other. This is extraordinary harmony and dance of lights, beauty, harmony. Um, that's the end we've been promised. I have not seen, or have not heard. Um, Nestorianism said there were two natures. I mean, there's some um, questions about but, um but he said that there were two natures, so not perfectly blended. Um, Pelagianism believed that there was no original sin and since there wasn't, man didn't need grace to get to heaven. You know from Dante, that, that, that remember the pagans, the virtuous pagans are in hell. Our own virtues are not sufficient to get to heaven because heaven is a divine condition. How can human virtues be adequate to get us there? Pelagius said, there's no original sin, we don't need grace. Um, Islam is is scandalized at the thought that yah that um, Allah. Allah thanks that Allah would have a companion because the, these Christians believe that there's a society up there, there's a father and a son and all. The thought that Islam or I mean that Godhead would have a that God yah that Allah would have a companion is scandalous to them. They very they, they look at Christ as a great prophet and are very sincere about that. But they, they, they deny the Trinity and, they, did, they in a sense, they, de- they deny the divine act of love that was performed by God when He came into the world and ask us to follow that love. Is, the Muslims will always tend to see things in terms of justice under the law, to not have to not have a faith in a God who loved so much that he was willing himself to die? I mean that that goes beyond reason. That's an extraordinary thing. The Gensians were um, um, an excessively ascetic Puritan group. Um, They believed that Christ was of the Spirit and the body was evil. Think about how contrary that is. Christ entered the body. How could it be evil if he entered it? Um, the Protestant Reformations, I want to come back to this in a second because that's where this is going towards Milken. G- um, Gallicanism is the belief that the state is equal in power and sometimes superior to the church. came out of France. This is 17th century. Jansenism, 17th century. Jansen, Jansen believed that man had no free will. A Catholic believes. Calvin believed man had no free will. Calvin and Jansenism are very close. Um, The Catholic believes man has free will, that God cannot, will not impose his will on people. He offers himself, invites, solicits, does does everything he can to encourage us in. Remember in Dante that that for God to take this mean he could either have left us damned or excuse the sin. He chose a middle path in order to help us cooperate in his own in our own salvation. Why else? Why else would if we had no free will in the matter this stuns me. If we had no free will in the matter, why would Christ have said pick up your cross or I give you a new commandment? Every one of those things assumes a will on our part. We can refuse it. Why else give it? Um... So every one of these heresies struck at the very nature of Christ. Okay, of who, and you can—I mean, how it's—it's it's humanly understandable because it's such a mystery. Who can—who can get our—who can get our heads around it? I just want to look at a couple of things right here that have come out of the Protestant Reformation. The, the central tenets of, the, by and large, the Protestant Reformation were um, sola fide, faith alone, sola scriptura, scripture alone. There's others, um, grace alone. and. Um, but I just want to look at um, a couple of these um, Protestant understandings of the source of authority um, for our faith. Um, Christ was one, there was no divided church, the church was one and united um, struggling with all these um, heresies for the greater part of its history. If you know your history, you know that in the 11th century, sometime around 1050, the, the Greek church broke off over this question about the filioque, which to me is, I mean, it's, it's a major question. The, the Greek, the Eastern Orthodox world believes that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father alone. The Western Catholic Church believes that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Now just, I don't want to get into this, but just stop and think about this. There's there's no sense in which the Spirit could proceed from the Father the way the Son does, because there can't be two generations of a Son. The Holy Spirit is a product of the two of them, otherwise He's he's like a Son, another concept of Himself. God only has one concept of Himself, He's one person, one being. And the, 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 what's been interesting for me as somebody working in literature and this whole question of beauty, which to me is at the heart of all literature. It's a piece of art, that how important beauty is to all works of art. If you separate the Holy Spirit from the Son, if you say that the Spirit proceeds just from the Father and you don't link Him with Christ and Christ comes into the world, He's the one who fleshes things out, Separate the spirit from that, act, that incarnating activity in the world, and art stops. What's the source of inspiration? Look at what's happened to the artwork in the East. If you know anything about artwork, you know it practically stops in the Middle Ages. They're all iconic. They're geographic. They, they, it's that Eastern otherworldliness. Art stops. How can it not? If the spirit is linked with Christ and Christ enters the world as an incarnating ongoing way, then one of the products of that would be an ongoing art. One of the, one, you know that one of the things I get most upset about is Catholic art. Where is it? God, where are the Catholic poets, painters, musicians? We have to be moving forward with the spirit. Um, it's, it's so rare, you all, I hope you know this from our work, it's so rare to find good artists. I hope you feel that from the work that we've done here. Sola Scriptura. Um, just think about this for a second. can't be Scriptural. Here's Christ. Here are the um, Gospel writers. Before they ever write, Christ has already sent disciples out. Right? Go out and baptize. He said that when He left. And people are already partaking of the Eucharist. They did it at his death and followed it. Paul speaks to that. They've been doing it. So there's this tradition that preceded the Bible. At um, this, I mean, it sends it on its way here. There's nothing that we get that isn't through people. We only get Christ through them. We never get him immediately, except I mean, if through the spirit in our lives but to say so the scripture doesn't make sense the tradition was already underway we get him through these writers we have to go through people to get to him and there's a larger community of things going on and we already know from that long list of heresies how easy it is for people to misread the bible to make christ something he's not to leave us at the mercy of the Bible alone and at the mercy of our own readings when they're so inadequate, that's not a good place to be left in. Sola Scriptura, sola fide, faith alone. If faith were alone, why did Christ say, I give you a new commandment? If faith were enough, how do we get all these heresies? None of these acts that Christ performs can happen without faith. That's so clear, right? He says that, I love that, um, the passage where Nathaniel is it? says, no man in, I've seen nobody in Jerusalem like this man. Remember the, was it Nathaniel? And this man has no guile. Um, people come up to him, he heals them because of their faith. So, um, you can't question the importance of faith without it. <laughs> this whole mystery that we've been talking about, can anybody enter into it with faith? I mean, without it, no, because it's so far beyond reason. So far. Reason itself is inadequate to penetrate those things. That's why they're matters of faith. And remember I've said this before, St. Thomas is really clear in this. If we base our faith on reason and people begin to question our reason and present reasons for questioning, we begin to question our faith. Our faith is gone. Faith is absolutely essential. All the healing took place because of people's faith. The centurion who came to him said, Heal my, so my servant. Mm. Finally, this whole question of the, um, the Eucharist, and let me just, let me, let me bring this. You didn't know when you started you were going to get Catechism 101. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just want you to know I didn't see this coming, this wasn't planned on, but... um, Just as one example, Luther and Calvin denied free will. They both believed that, particularly Calvin, believed that nature was essentially corrupt. How it could be corrupt if Christ entered into it? Beyond me, but... And remember that the the community we're looking at, the beginning of Moby Dick, is largely Calvinistic. Presbyterian, it's Congregationalist. Um, Luther um, believed in the real presence. He was absolutely sincere about that. The, the high Catholic world has always been so. The the high Anglican, the Anglican Catholic, and the Episcopalian think of all all believed in the real presence. Um, Luther believed in it, um, but he he was. Um, So riled up about the reforms in the church that I think in some ways he just... There there was something in him antagonistic that got in the way of what he did. Uh, Let me just leave it that way. He wanted to substitute the idea of consubstantiation for transubstantiation. Now remember this. This is really important. If you go back over that list of heresies that I just went over, just hold on to this. Those are heresies that the church has had to deal with all along. It will continue to have to deal with them. People are always going to come up with heresies. Every one of those heresies came out of something current at that time, a way of thinking. So if you look at the heresies, they they gather around a way of thinking and get directed to the church. That's been peculiar. People inside the church have been influenced by those ways of thinking of the world. So you can imagine the the struggle, the difficulties the church has in constantly trying to protect Christ and his believers. Um, Luther believed in the real presence, but he was was uncomfortable. He did not like the idea of the real presence as the Catholic church had taught it. Remember now, by Catholic church, I mean the, the church that has been from the beginning founded by Christ was in continuation through the whole of history and continues to exist now. If you go into the East, into the whole Eastern Orthodox, Russian, Turk, Siberian, Russian, if you go into any Orthodoxes in the East, you'll find the Mass and the sacraments exactly the way they were from the very beginning. From the very beginning, the Eucharist was practiced immediately after Christ died was ongoing. All the masses grew out of that. The traditions grew out of it. If you go into the East, you'll see a world essentially as it was 2000 years ago. Um, I mean, you have to say to yourself, what's going on here? How could it be this way and in the Catholic world? The major change to that is in the Protestant Reformation. And the, the Reformation leaders, almost to a person, responded in this way. They did not like philosophy, they wanted to get it out of the way. They wanted to go back to a more primitive church um, without ceremonies, because almost all of the Protestant reformers—Huss and Wycliffe and Luther and Calvin and the others—they um, did not believe in the. Luther believed in, They did not believe in the real presence. Every one of these heresies that I that I just quickly went over. Has as its root a rationalizing tendency. It's to take mystery away because you don't have control of it. It makes faith more real, right? But every one of them is, is reductive. And in that sense, Luther belongs with that group because he says this, even though he believed in the present, Christ is really present in the Eucharist, but he coexists in the host and the wine. Now stop and think about the, this coexisting. He's present, but not only coexisting, because the bread and the and the wine remain the same. That is literally their bread and wine. The Catholic Christ says, this is my, this is my body, this is my blood unless you eat of this you will. The Catholic believes that the in the transubstantiation that the body and blood of Christ are are actually, that the wafer and the wine are actually transformed, changed into Christ.
1: Hmm.
0: And that the consubstantiation is like these, like these modalism, that Christ never fully entered into history, that he never took on a personhood and became that person. If you look at these heresies, how in the world can you come up with a notion like consubstantiation? Because consubstantiation is, he's not fully there. The Catholic from the beginning has maintained, this is the body, this is my body, this is my blood. Now think about this, because go back to Dante in the Perdiso. That means every time a Catholic, every time a Catholic takes the Eucharist, he is more and more separating himself from his own sins and he is melding himself into Christ, into the body, into a divine nature. If it's not completely divine, what's it doing? The larger Protestant world believes it's only a commemorative act, that you're taking actual wine and actual bread in remembrance of Christ. It's reductive. Christ is not there. Now, I really want everybody to to see this. The issue of transubstantiation, the the issue of the nature, was always present in the heresies. It never became an issue in the Eucharist until modern times, well, I mean, what I'd call modern times, 13th, 14th, 15th century, with all the modern rationalists, the the early Protestant reformers, Hus, Wycliffe, others whose names I'm not getting right now, but, Um, every one of them looked at the Eucharist as commemorative. The Catholic, the Eastern Orthodox, the whole Catholic world has always, and by Catholic I meant the Eastern Orthodox until the 11th century was one world, has always maintained the essential role of the sacraments and particularly the Eucharist, because when when somebody takes the Eucharist in that faith, that that's Christ, that's an act of faith. That person is entering into the sacrificial life of God. He's taking on some of his divine life and and becoming more and more welded into him. I'm using that word because Ishmael, if you remember, says became welded into Ahab's. um. Now, if, if and to go back to the text, I may be jumping something here, but if Vidal is evil, and I believe he is, he's the most evil person in literature that I know, except for Iago, if he's evil, do men and women have the power to actually deal with evil It's um, without a divine life? If, if if the Christian faith descends into a moral code and it becomes something in thought, it's in mind. You know. Remember, I said one of the I mean one of the similarities between the Protestant the the world that's lost touch with the sacraments, is that it, it's picked up the rabbinical tradition, the rabbis in the in the temple reading and interpreting scripture. If you go to a typical Protestant meeting today, it's a minister, interpreting scripture. There's no sacrament. You're, you're in a world of thought. You're in your head. The Bible says, taste and see. When we take the Eucharist, we're taking God into us, hopefully, and becoming sharing in His divine life. And I'm assuming helped to deal with evil in a way that we find harder when we don't have that divine element in us. That's my... I'm not sure if I'd left something out here, but... I have to breathe. (laughs) Sorry, sorry, this is... So this question that I asked a few weeks ago about, can a a Christian community maintain its faith without the sacraments? I didn't intend it, you know. didn't, but it was a real question growing out of... And it really—I mean—I I, I, mean—to come back to to uh, Mel, Melville here, um, to go back to the original question: What are we going to learn from Ishmael on this question? I don't want to—I'm sh- going to come back for a moment, but I just—I want to get back to a whale. Um, um, what does is Ishmael come back to tell us? And maybe more importantly, what does he come back to give us? And um, Will it be sufficient? In fact, I'm going to put it more darkly. One of the things I've been saying from the beginning, if you look at the beginning, there's a pretty serious critique of Christianity. I hope nobody has any scruples about that. It's pretty damning. And if you look at what happens on board the quarter-deck, it gets worse because then it's evil. It, Ahab gets everybody in that enterprise. They're all going with him. You know at the end they're all, the ship's going to be destroyed. Everybody's going to, everybody's going to be killed except Ishmael. Everybody's going to die. Um, So, what is he bringing back? What is he, like Jonah going to Nineveh, what is he telling us? And maybe more importantly, what is he giving us? And to put it darkly, will it be enough to deal with Fadala? This is in light of the context, the present context, dealing with actual evil, because nobody can at the beginning of the story. Now let me stop. I want to get back to Moby Dick, but let me stop here. Any questions on the sacrament? Because I feel like I'm out of my depths, over my head, with a whale next to me ready to gobble me up. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm deeply underwater. <laughs> so, so given the context that you just laid out for us, why do you think Melville name this characterish I'm going to wait on the last... <laughs> Just like you.
2: go
0: <laughs> <laughs> I want to wait till the end because that is such a huge As a matter of fact, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go home and write this down. I'm going to ask that question. I'm going to direct it to you. <laughs> <laughs> because the, I'm, he's the I- only character that survived. Yeah, right. right. Yeah, and it's Ishmael. It, it's the, it's the outcast. And I, you know, I told you when we first began. That he's the founder of Islam indirectly. I mean, we don't see any hint that Islam is coming, but Muhammad will trace his roots back to Ishmael. And we know that is not Islam, he's Christian, in the opening. So why did, I don't want to answer it. But I, wanna, I really want to save that for the last class, and it'll be one of the lead questions that I'm going to. Any questions on the hey, mic? I just have uh, one thing to point out, that you pointed out, Janism. Jansenism. Well, yeah, is it more prevalent today
1: than it was, say, years ago? Because um, that's the belief that man has no free will. Because you see it more and more often today. And the reason why I say that is because more and more people are blaming God for what they do. Yeah,
0: yeah, that's a good question, Mike. Um, I mean, it's interesting that science, t- I mean, generally, not. I don't want to be careful here, but science generally works with determinisms what can't be other, what's necessary, what can't be other than ten He wants to uncover laws. If you look at Freud, when you're going to the human person instead of nature, if you look at Freud, you've got a, a, um, an advocate of that position because Freud believed that we did not have free will, that things were determined. He was a materialist too, even though he was trying to explain the psyche. Most scientists believe our um, Preoccupied with determinisms, what can't be other? The, the wonderful, the strange thing for me, and I'm—I sort of muse at this. Um, Melville is having fun with all of this, but there's not, there's not anything going on in our modern world that he doesn't. Ta- the measure, the empirical measurements of the well as if that's going to give you anything. Um, when I listen to these studies come out from sciences about weight or. Um, genetics or, you know, drinking, whatever, whatever the problem is, inherited or... The, the thing that science cannot ever get a hold of is the human, the mystery of the human will. And most science will deny, I mean, or lots of scientists will deny that we have a free will. So, you get that from one large area of life, and that's grown more and more prevalent, that things can't be other than they are, that you can fight, but um, it's somewhat futile and you get it from the Protestant world because most of the reformers denied that we had free will, Luther believed that we didn't have free will, Calvin Calvin went overboard on it and he believed we were all predetermined and God's grace was irresistible, that it took hold of you and once you were, once His grace had you, you were saved. Um, so, you're right, I mean, the world at large doesn't, um, in that sense the Catholic By the way, on Monday night I started with this, I should have done this today, I started with a loose definition of heresy. Heresy means you you take a belief in in the face of a larger coherent system and you oppose that. That's what heresy means, that's the nature of that word. So, and I want to make this really clear, so According to the modern, secular, pluralistic view of the world, political view of the world, that we all want to become one people and get along and not have any problems and tolerate each other, that's the ideal of, that was the Obama Marxist, that we're going to reach this classless world where everybody's equal and if, if, you, if you enforce that, equality will take away all the sins, crime, poverty, all of that will go. That's the, that's the secular, modern, secular political view of our nature and our world. If you take that world and put the Catholic next to it, you have to say that a Catholic is a heretic. And I'm saying that, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm sort of being like Ishmael, I hope, here. I'm being partly facetious because um, as heretics, we are bigoted, intolerant, dogmatic, unloving, um, um, uncompassionate. I mean, we, we are out of touch with that world. So from the perspective of that world, we're heretics. We are espousing heresies. So I want to use that so everybody's clear on that. Within the Christian world, given you know our understanding of the Bible and Christ and everything that He came, if, and I've said this before, I hope I've said it, and I hope it's stuck, if, if Christ is God, if He is God, um, then Christianity is not one of a number of religions, it's sui generis. It's absolutely unique to itself, because no other religion can, can claim that, that God came down. In that sense, it belongs to itself. So if this is true, if, if either Christ was a madman, he was insane, and I don't know how a madman could have performed all the miracles he did, but if he was mad, then you blow him off. If you take him seriously, you have to say, either these, these people who wrote these scriptures are lying, or this guy's God. If he's God, then we've got to get clear in his nature, and all these are heretical in the sense that they're, they're falsifying that nature in some way. They're doing something that, that isn't truthful about that nature, and so we recognize them as heresies. Any other questions? Was this useful, was this all, you already knew this, yeah, didn't you?
1: We're all heretics. <laughs> well we are all in some
0: sense but I, I'm asking seriously, I don't know this, I, I felt a little bit unsure because I don't sometimes I, I my, my impression is that most of us particularly if you're a Prado-Catholic, that you grow up taking a lot for granted and we, we, in that sense we're like Islam or anybody, the Jews, that you grow up with a certain belief and you, and you believe it, you, you will fight to your death. It, it, you have to admire Islam because their faith, whatever you say about them, they're absolutely sincere. They absolutely believe what they're doing. They believe that. They're going to go to their death fighting. When you grow up holding a certain belief, you that's the way you see the world. And I sometimes wonder, how, how much Catholics are aware of this, because I have the sense sometimes that we're not. And, and if you're not conscious of what's behind it, you can begin to take it for granted, and then you hear Christ saying, people are going to say, Christ, 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 and I won't have anything to do with it. Remember, the inferno is filled with Catholics. Being Catholic doesn't mm. save anybody. So I, I'm just wondering, was this, just for a minute, was this all repeat for you?
1: I'm no. a convert. No.
2: So, this is no. It, it no. Was, it, you know,
0: I, I went through the RCA program. I was a Protestant. Were you? Wow. Wow. Was, I didn't know it was that. Wow. A very interesting exercise for me. Was this all a repeat from what you got in the RCA? RCA? Well, yeah. Okay. It, there, it, there, was, there, there was nothing contradictory in anything that you presented. But I, I came from a long line of Baptists. My parents were Baptists. Their parents were Baptists. Their parents were Baptists, and I converted about 13 years ago because my wife is. A Did they talk with you, your family? Um, yeah. Well, uh, they—they were—they were—they were. My mother, father. Well, pretty much everyone except my sister was dead before I. converted, So. You all know that I've been an interesting <laughs> discussion. Yeah, yeah. You all know that I came from Greek Orthodoxy, that I was raised Greek, and and, to, and Suzanne was not Greek and was interesting to be aware of how aware they were that she was not Greek because when you enter into the Eastern Orthodox world you enter into an ethnic contained world if you're Greek Orthodox you're Greek and one of the things that you learn, or at least I did, is that for all the Eastern that your race gets in the way, it's a filter Your, your Greekness almost becomes more than your faith your traditions and the traditions get in the way so when you leave Greek Orthodoxy, you step outside of a, you step outside of your world in some ways. Um, it, was a, it was a revelation for us.
2: Well, I was gonna, you know, I think I mentioned to you that my younger brother, of course, we were cradle Catholics. Uh, my mom was a convert from Baptist, uh, and um, my younger brother, several years ago, converted to um Eastern Orthodox and he started going to church ever in a Lebanese community. Yeah. And his he married a Baptist. So um <laughs>
1: she goes she would go to you know church with him.
2: Um but they struggled with the culture because they were sure. not Lebanese. Yeah. And so um it very much was hard for them because mm-hmm. the whole culture thing, they weren't quite accepted into the church. Uh, not by their their priest, he was fine, but yeah. the community at large. Um, they were nice and everything, but they just never quite fit mm-hmm. in. And um, so now they are both attending yeah. the Catholic Church again. Oh. She's still Baptist he's still I don't know what. Invite I them to this
0: class. So <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's, it's been an interesting
2: to see that.
0: Let's stop. Um, next, remember Monday, Monday you can pick up the study guides for the last section and um, we will either take two more weeks or three to finish it, so um, if you'll move along and um, we'll get back to Wales. <laughs> but re- remember, one of the, uh, um, Shefali I thought said it really well, remember that, I, I just laugh, I remember growing, or when I was in college reading works, and I remember some of the most important essays written on Melville, were Melville's quarrel with God. You know, the they the had this angry quarrel. If you read Ishmael, nobody could be farther away from anger than, there's you cannot, he, he, there's not an aspect of the world that he doesn't look at. He's asking us to stop going through the world fixated on work or whatever it is we're doing, to, to be aware of the things. And if you read them, you, you cannot hear anything but humor. He's so, he, he laughs at the people who keep coming to these judgments about things. One of the things he's bringing to us is a pleasure, a, a wonder, a gratitude, for the marvels of our world, the analogies that interlink everything. So, as you're reading, remember um, what um, Safali said, that he, he's dealing with factual things, mostly the whale and the ship and the whaling industry, and, but he never touches anything without relating it to us and our activities as humans. Remember the, the shark episode, where they turn around and they start by going after the whale? And then they turn on each other, and then they start turning on their own entrails and their own voidings. Mm-hmm. And I asked if that was an image of what goes on in work. Father did it the other day when, he's, when he says we start turning on ourselves and eating ourselves up because we get so consumed with something. And the Armada episode where the ship gets pulled into this calm where the mothers and their babes are looking up at the whalemen and f- trusting not frightened, and then suddenly into that is this wounded whale bringing the harpoons and the knives that are cutting everything. That's, that was the result of a failed human enterprise that threw itself in and threw everything off. And in the midst of that, Ishmael said, it would not disturb my innermost being, that at the center of his being he felt this tranquil joy. So there's nothing going on that he doesn't relate to our human condition. And remember, I I said this last week, he still, so far as we know, he's committed to this Ahab quest, but we cannot read him without feeling that chapter by chapter by chapter, that that hold is loosening, that he's standing in an entirely different way in the world, which I think is in part the reason for his survival at the end. So what is he teaching us? I really think as you read this, you should be enjoying it. I mean, you should enjoy his humor because it's partly the spirit of his humor, his gratitude, his wonder that's. I think we should be taking from him. So so next week we'll pick up wherever we are. I don't even know where we are right now. <laughs> I'll see you guys have a good weekend. And, and by the way, all of you have a good lunch, a really good lunch.
1: Good story. Oh, gotta take the book. Yeah,
2: there's yours.
1: let me let me do that too. Yeah.
0: Oh, uh, oh, get the book. Okay. Oh.